And the Bible says, when Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud cry, loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called to Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai and learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king's presence these 30 days. My points for our sermon this morning are in the form of an alliteration. So I joke oftentimes that I do this because I'm a nerd. I joke oftentimes that I do this because it makes it more easy for me to remember. The truth is, I've got notes up here, and there is no benefit for me being able to remember my sermon points at all. I put my points in an alliteration so that you might remember them. So that as you're laying in bed tonight... Okay, let's get real. You're not going to lay in bed tonight. At 1 o'clock this afternoon when you're taking a nap at home after the church service, and you wake up and you wonder, what was that young, strange-looking man saying this morning? He gave me two big questions, and I was really interested in the answer, but then he went on for what seems like about 30 minutes, and I'm not really sure how it all connects. You can think back, and you can remember the letter R. We have a responsibility. That's what it means to have free will. What it means to have agency. You have a responsibility. How are we to respond? How are we to live in a world that doesn't appear to be controlled by God because the powers that we see seem to run away from Him? You have a responsibility. You are required to respond to God's word. 
So we begin our passage this morning, looking at verses 1 through 3, the first three verses that I read a moment ago, we find that there is a requirement in God's people to respond to what is happening around us. Not just that we would respond to God's word, we understand this in the salvation experience, that you must respond to God, but also that we must respond to what is happening in the world. Faced with genocide, Mordecai learned all that had been done, and Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes. He began to mourn. He began to mourn. And this is what we look at as we, we ask these questions. What does it mean? What does it imply that I have agency and that God is sovereign? How do these interact with each other? First, it requires that you would respond to God. That means not only that you would respond to his word as you read it, as you study it, as you spend time in it, but also that you would respond to God in the way that he is working in the world around you. When you see things that are troublesome, respond like they're troublesome. My goodness, when you see people who are in destitute positions, respond with sorrow because that's a really sad place to be. Do you people have empathy? Do you have concern? Are you so disconnected from this world that you forget that there's real evil working around us? Part of our response in knowing God and living in this world should be that there is a healthy amount of mourning that comes with us. There's trouble in living in the present. There's trouble in being a Christian and knowing that God is in control, and at the same time seeing hardship. Where do we see hardship? Maybe I'm the only person that sees this, but sometimes at home, sometimes with family, sometimes at work, sometimes in the church, sometimes in society. I see hardship and I mourn. My wife and I frequently say to each other, I'm ready to go home. I'm done. I think some of you say the same thing. I look around myself, I look at the circumstances, and I have confidence that God is in control, even though I do not have clarity of what God is doing in the present. See, belief in God's sovereignty doesn't always stop us from mourning whenever we go through something that is particularly troublesome. When I experience the loss of a loved one, Simply believing that it was God's will that I lose that loved one doesn't make me feel better. I still mourn. Even believing that a loved one is reunited in glory with God and that there is nothing that I would do to bring them back to this depraved world beyond that doesn't bring me particular comfort because I still mourn that the place that they are in is not the place that I am in. Sometimes we need to respond to God and what he is doing simply by mourning because we cannot see everything that he is doing. To paint a smile on our face in the face in the, in, while we um, are up against these obstacles is really counterintuitive because it's not walking with God, it's walking against him. Second, how should we respond to God? How are we required to respond? By moving. You see, sometimes we talk about mourning and people use it as an excuse that we would simply sit around and do nothing. But look at what Mordecai does. He puts on his sackcloth, his ashes, he tears his clothes and he sits at home and he doesn't do anything and he doesn't let anyone know what he's going through. No. Verse 2. He went up 
to the entrance of the king's gate, he moved. He went to the gate. Our mourning cannot be allowed to immobilize us. Simply because we are not satisfied with the state of the church, with the state of an organization or association, or, or because we're not satisfied with our state or our city or our country should not cause us to mourn, but it should cause us to move as a people. Check this out. By the way, if you didn't catch all of this, I subliterated this point for you. So you've got the R's. You're required to respond by mourning, by moving, and by messaging. Mordecai got out his cell phone, texted Esther, and said, Yo, girl, we got some problems. No, there's a 500 BC. There's no. There's, there's no texting going on. He went to the gate for a very important reason, though. He went to the gate so that he would be with the Jews who were mourning all throughout the province, so that he would be united in society to all of these people. And it says that everywhere in the province where the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews. The people were all fasting and lamenting. This might, in fact, verse 3 of chapter 4 might be the most spiritual verse in the whole book of Esther, because the people sought God. Who were they messaging with? God. And here's the wonder. When you mourn, when you cry, whenever you have trouble to see what God is doing in your life when you're faced with obstacles. Here's the great encouragement. God hears you. He hears the cries of his people. He listens and he responds. But why can't God just let us skip to the good part? Because sometimes we need to mourn. Sometimes we need to lament. Rather than just skipping to the good part, sometimes we need to hear hard truths that humble us. The book of Esther is fun. It's a narrative. It's a good story. I mean, just even if it wasn't in the Bible, it's just a good story to read. I would read this to my kids at bedtime. Man, it's much easier than those other books in the Bible that tell me about all of the sins that the world is overcome with. All those other passages in the Bible that remind me that total depravity is a real thing and that I am consumed with an evil nature inside of me unless I am redeemed by God. And even after that redemption that I must fight against the flesh and all that I do because God is the only one that can deliver me from these things. And it reminds me that when I struggle and when I'm incapable of doing that, it's my own fault. Get this straight in your head. When we say that God's the one that redeems us from things, when you go back to sin, it's not God that let you go back to sin. It's you that turned away from God. How does that make you feel? It makes me feel warm and fuzzy. Because that same God that allows me to do those things still calls me to Him. Sometimes we need to hear hard truths. In fact, a good friend is one that tells us hard truths. We need to hear hard truths so that we can get to the really good part. A relationship with God where we're not running away from Him. A relationship where we're not hiding. A state in the church where the people are truly united around the mission of the kingdom. A state in society where people are repenting of their sinfulness and asking God what His natural laws are. So we mourn, so we move, so we message so that we can respond to God. Second, we do not just respond to God. We're not just required to respond, but we are also required to 
realize. Verses 4 through 8, we find Esther beginning to realize what has happened around her. Esther, at this point, it's been some time. She's not been called, if we jump ahead all the way to verse 11, we find that she had not been called into the king's presence these 30 days. But also, look at verse 4, at the way that the eunuchs come and tell her what had happened to Mordecai. You've got to kind of imagine this in your head. If you're a visual person like me, you gotta, this is a narrative, so you have to imagine it like a movie. Here's Esther up in the palace doing her own thing. She's got all these servants. She's beautiful. People do anything for her. And here comes a servant. Hey, Esther. You know your cousin, that guy that raised you, is basically like, he's walking around like a lunatic. He doesn't even have clothes on. He is weeping and wailing. You might have slipped. Esther is very distressed by this. I'm the queen of the Persian Empire. Send him some clothes. Mordecai sends the clothes back, says, I don't want these clothes. I'm like this because I need to be like this because all of our people are going to be killed. And it's personal for Mordecai, isn't it? Why are the Jews going to be killed? He's the one that insulted Haman. It comes back to him. Imagine the guilt, the grief that he's experiencing. Esther was isolated in the circumstance that she was in. She had isolated herself by becoming queen, by capitulating to whatever powers. By the way, do you like Esther in this story so far? Any fans of Esther? That's good. I'm not a fan of Esther at this point. I think she's rather immature. Fortunately, she redeems herself by the end of the story. The problem that we have with isolation, especially in the state that Esther is in, is that Christians often isolate themselves by defining on unbiblical terms what Christian fellowship looks like. We often isolate ourselves by defining what good enough looks like within our own communities. What do I mean by that? Well, you've heard the saying, you've heard many people probably say, I can't go to church, I've got to get my life cleaned up before. We've talked about that many times, saying, you don't have to get your life cleaned up before you come to church. Come to church and simply praise God. We're not even worried about people getting their life cleaned up, as a matter of fact, because we trust a sovereign God. Come as you are, we say. That's not how we act, though. That's what we confess with our mouth, but that's not really how we act. Remember when... Our own association called a missionary to plant a church in Springdale, Arkansas, Clinton Morris. If you've never met Clinton, he has a mohawk. And I'm not talking about faux hawk. I'm talking about full-blown red mohawk. Now, personally, I have some differences with Clinton, and I struggle to have a conversation with him because he talks more than I do, which is really saying something. But what really struck me was all of the people who had not talked to Clinton that would go around, have you seen our new missionary with the mohawk? 
Hey, I wear a tie and a coat on Sunday mornings. That's because I'm a pastor of a traditional church. Glad to be a pastor of a traditional church. I'm a traditional pastor. If I didn't have a tie on, would I still be holy enough to stand up and preach the Word of God? Hey, if I didn't wear a coat, would I still be holy enough to stand up and preach the Word of God? I like those IFB guys because I think they're funny whenever they say I wear a white collar and a, and a blue suit because I'm called by God to preach and that's what preachers wear. I'm making this all for a joke that we simply have expectations that are unbiblical sometimes. Because you can laugh at that and you can say, those aren't my expectations, but search yourself. Think about it for a moment. While that might be an extravagant example, you have your own expectations. You have your own prejudices. You have your own idea of what fellowship looks like. How do you force that onto other people? Do you use it accidentally, incidentally? To isolate yourself from real Christian fellowship. Faced with that information, we must realize the truth. And this is what Esther was forced to do. When Mordecai refused the clothes that she had brought to... to, When Mordecai refused the clothes that she had sent to him, she sent Hathach, a servant, to go ask Mordecai, what's up? Have you really lost your mind? What's going on? And Mordecai explains... We're all going to die. Haman told the king that he wanted to kill all of us. He offered 10,000 talents of silver to the king because he knew it would cost money just so he could kill all of us. And, well, you know what? If you don't believe me, here's a copy of the letter. Here's the decree that went throughout all of the land. You can read it yourself. Here's the information. She clipped out the newspaper article. Sent it to Esther, and Esther was forced to face the facts. Forced to face the facts. I mentioned sometimes we refuse to move or refuse to respond to God simply because the information that we might look at forces us to face the the, the truth. We want to skip to the good part because we don't want to go through the real act of repenting, of, of turning to God. We don't want to talk about theology. Why? Because it would force us to mature. It would force us to think of God as God and not a sentimental feeling kind of romance relationship that we would have with some sort of infatuated boyfriend. We don't want to face the reality of the church's problems in this world because we know that if we did, it would test our loyalty and our commitment. We know that if we face the truth, that there are problems. So long as we exist on this side of eternity, there are problems that need to be fixed, that need to be addressed, that need to be resolved and restored because that's what God promises to do. Perhaps the reason we don't face it is because we don't have enough confidence in God to do what He says He would do with our problems. If that's not the case, I think... Simply feeling like it would test our loyalty to the Bible or to a tradition is the greater problem. Information is key to realizing what God has done. Information forces us to face the facts and beyond that, it gives us the implications for the way that we are to live. 
There are plain implications of being a part of a community and being armed with knowledge that God has given us. Simply put, we must respond to what the information says. I'm back to my first point. We're walking in circles, aren't we? You must respond to what God has told us. The connection here is this. That we realize our great need for a sovereign God and we respond to the way He is directing us. You are required to respond. You are required to realize. And finally, finally, if you've got these implications in mind, you are required to rely. To rely on the sovereign God that we so desperately need so desperately need. Haythetch comes back to Esther and tells her all that is going on. And she sees the implications, right? Look at verse 8. Mordecai gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. Mordecai realized that through God's sovereignty, she had been placed in a position of influence that she might go to the king who had allowed this atrocity to take place, who had yielded his authority by removing his signet ring and giving it to the despicable Haman. Wait, I was calling him the horrible Haman. I like that more. It's another alliteration. Giving it to the horrible Haman so that he could issue a decree that all of the Jews would be killed. This should prompt her to use her influence to save the Jews. It's the right thing to do. But she responds, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. Let's translate that. If you came into the presence of the king without being requested to come to the presence of the king, the guards that stood around the king would take siege of you you, and kill you. Unless the king kind of winked at the guards and was like, it's all right, we'll let this one through. In fact, he'd use his golden scepter and point. Notice that Mordecai back in verse 1, or I'm sorry, verse 2, he goes to the entrance of the king's gate, but he doesn't go in past the king's gate because no one's allowed to do so in sackcloth? Do you remember when we were studying the book of Nehemiah a year ago and we talked about Nehemiah in the presence of... Actually, if you want to connect the pieces, King Cyprus, the emperor of the Persian Empire and Nehemiah, that's King Ahasuerus' grandfather. Remember, Nehemiah was cupbearer for the king and he was sad in the king's presence and he had never been sad in the king's presence before. Do you know what was so profound about that? Kings didn't like people to be sad around them. If you weren't smiling and chipper and well, it's said that there was something displeasing. I mean, just imagine he's a king. You should be happy just to stand in his presence. That's the way people thought of themselves. Esther's point here is, I can't go in the king's presence. He hasn't called me. He hasn't called me in 30 days. I can't go and simply make this request to him. I will get killed. Look what he did to Vashti before me. Now, there's some irony in this. 
Right? This is what makes it a good narrative. Vashti was commanded to come, and she didn't come, so she was out. Esther has a great need to go. She's not going to, she doesn't want to go because she'll be killed. Here's what I mean when I say that you're required to respond, required to realize, and required to rely on God. When you know what is right, you are required to go. We have to obey God and leave the consequences to Him. When we obey God, we trust that in all of His power and all of His greatness, me using my agency to do what He tells me to do, He's also going to protect me from the consequences of that. Maybe He won't. Maybe I'll have to endure the consequences. Maybe there'll be more cause for me to mourn. But ultimately, God's the one that's going to take care of those consequences. I find great encouragement stopping at verse 11. I know you'd like to skip to the good part. Keep reading this evening. Nothing's stopping you. You actually don't need me to read your Bible. I don't know if you realize that. It's actually not a requirement. In fact, the Bible says that we're all priests, called a royal priesthood by God. You actually have the, you know why you can pray to God on your own? Because if he saved you according to his name, you're in Christ with equal measure as me. Now, when we get to heaven, I think elders get a special crown. But, you know, that's a totally different topic. We can talk about uh, all of that later. I'm really sure. I'm, not, I'm actually not sure I'm settled on what the varying degrees of reward in heaven, what the, all that means. It's very confusing to me. So I've, I haven't figured all that, that out. That's why I still read my Bible. I still have questions, and I still enjoy finding answers. What's all this mean? Relying on God, trusting Him with the consequences of our obedience. I look at Esther, and I see a weak, fragile little girl put into a position that she has no business being in. And I think about dear Christians, faint-hearted from responding to issues that exist around us. Let me try to put it very simply. Christian, even though you're faint-hearted, even though you're tired of being rejected by a world that has heard the gospel before, the command is to go. Go, even though you are faint-hearted, Christian. Well, secondly, sinner, even though you're scared to come to a holy God with more power, with more sovereignty, with more knowledge than any king that has ever reigned on earth ever has had, even though you're scared, afraid to come into his presence, trembling with a sad and mournful face, come. Come to Him because our God is not a God who executes those who come to His presence. In fact, He tells us to enter the throne room of grace with confidence. The application is so clear. If you're called by His name, even though you're tired, go with confidence that He is the one that makes the path for you. If you are scared to come to Him, you still have a responsibility to respond to the gospel that Christ called us by His name, that He died for your sins. Come to Him. He 
welcomes you. In conclusion this morning, I think that point's so strong. Go and come. I love it so much. I don't want to add anything to it. So we've alliterated our sermon like good old-fashioned Baptist. Let's end with a poem. How about a hymn? If you have your hymn, I'll turn to hymn 275. Some songs just aren't made equal. Hymn 275, how firm a foundation, theologically rich, gives us an idea of what it means to come to God and to have Him as our foundation. We're not going to sing it, but I want you to read with me. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent word. What more can He say that to you He hath said? To you who for refuge to Jesus have fled. What more could God say to you than what he has already written right here? What more encouragement do you need than the 66 books that I hold between my thumb and fingers? Try this on for size. Fear not, I am with thee. Oh, be not dismayed. For I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. The soul that on Jesus hath leaned for response Repose, I will not, I will not desert to its foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, never forsake. What a great God we serve, even if he isn't mentioned in our text. Father in heaven, I thank you for this morning and for your word. Father, I ask that you be with us. As we stand, as we prepare to sing, as we prepare to respond to your word, that we remember that we do have a responsibility to respond, to realize, and to rely on your goodness. God, I ask that you would help us. Help us to be faithful in our response. Help us not to wait. But God, if we've placed our faith in you to proclaim it, to shout it, to let the whole world know. Help us to praise you, Lord, in our faithfulness. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Will you stand with us as we prepare to sing?